John 8, and we're going to go through this. Uh, you know, the good thing about preaching three times a week is if you kind of, you know, feel led to do something, some one of these other services, you can preach that message later. Amen. Keep it in reserve. But uh, I really feel like we need we needed an admonishment this morning on prayer and what it means to really be devoted to prayer. Amen. Uh, tonight we're going to not get stuck on that subject and I'm going to preach John 8. <laughs> Amen. Uh, so if you would turn your Bibles to John chapter 8 and we are going to read the first 11 verses. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives and early in the morning he came a he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it began being convicted by their own consciences, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was alone with the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now I want to start with a short preface that I want to uh, talk about very briefly. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because we're going to preach this like it's canon. We're going to preach this like it's the word of God. Okay. But in modern textual criticism, there is a debate that these first 11 verses and actually you can put in uh, chapter 7 verse 53 so there's 12 verses that some modern scholars say are not original to the writings of John or this epistle of John I want to give you just a short brief history of this view and of the history of this pericope what they call it a pericope okay now first of all the Latin church from the earliest days that we can see have accepted this verse as canon, okay? 
This verse has been in every single Latin version of scripture that has been written from the third or the fourth century till today. And we realize that was only in the fourth century when they started making whole books and combining them into books. Okay? That really started in around the third and fourth century. So we have the earliest accounts of this 12 verses being in the Latin church or the Roman church from the very beginning, starting in the 300s or late, uh, early 400s, okay? And you have that same set of verses all the way through church history, all the way through the Reformation, all the way through to 1840. In 1840, they found the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus, okay? And the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus are supposedly dated earlier than any other manuscripts that we have. And this is not in them. But that doesn't mean that they weren't ever around, okay? Because we have historical evidence that they were around. Uh, early church fathers such as uh, Ambrosia, Augustine, Jerome, all testify to the existence of this in Scripture, in the Greek text that they had. So we understand the debate. I would argue that because the church for the last 1,700 plus years has believed it to be canon and has taught from this scripture, okay? Let's just think about some great men of God who have taught from this scripture. Martin Luther, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, Matthew Henry, um, John Calvin, all have preached from these 12 verses as if they are canon and the churches believe they are canon right up until 1840, okay? Now, could there be merit to their statement? Possibly. Now, most Bibles and your ESV Bible will say that these are possibly not original, and they'll say, our most early manuscripts don't contain them. Now, I want to clear up the most early manuscripts. That most early manuscripts is two. How many manuscripts do we have? Over 5,700. So out of 5,700 manuscripts, only two don't have it. In my opinion, that doesn't outweigh the other 56. 500 or 50, how many ever it is, okay? I'm not good at math, especially math on the fly. But I can tell you that we're going to preach this like it is scripture because the church has believed it to be scripture for almost 2,000 years, okay? So I'm not going to spend no more time on this discussion than this. I want to read a short uh, passage out of the Reformation Heritage Study Bible. 
and it reads on verse 1 through 11, some scholars believe that this text, starting with chapter 7, verse 53, was not an original part of God, John's gospel. They argue that though it is present in a large number of Greek manuscripts, it is lacking in several older manuscripts, including a few Greek manuscripts extant today that are dated earlier than the 5th century. However, compelling attestations given by many men of God in the, uh, before that warrant every bit of its inclusion into our Bible. Jerome in 420 AD wrote that it appeared in many Greek and Latin manuscripts available to him at that time from the 4th century and earlier. So it does have very ancient attestation. Ambrosia 397 and Augustine 430 indicated that the account caused offense among those fearing that it would encourage adultery. And this is a possible reason that it was taken out of the text, that it might encourage adultery. Now, I don't know how they would come to that conclusion because Jesus clearly says at the end, what? Go and sin no more. Amen? So with all of that being said, the vast majority of church history has believed these 12 verses to be scripture. Your pastor believes them to be scripture, so I'm going to teach them like they're scripture. Can I get an amen? I think it would be Hoove us to ask the question while we wrap this up. In modern textual criticism, which did not come around until the late 1800s to the early 1900s when these manuscripts were found, what are we saying when we say this isn't scripture? Are we saying that for nearly 1700 years, men of God filled with the Holy Ghost, full of God's Spirit, who translated from Greek to Latin to English, our Bible, had it wrong for thousands of years. And all of a sudden, now, today, we actually have the real Bible. I think that's a very poor argument. I think it's easy for people to find ancient documents and then claim they're more reliable than the ones we've had for most of church history. That doesn't make any sense to me. The early church fathers had no idea of these texts' existence, else they would have used them. Amen? I think what we have in this line of text in the Byzantine or majority text is what the church has had for the last 2,000 years, okay? I think there's plenty of historical evidence to back that up, and I'm willing to ride the rails on John 8, 1 through 11. Amen? So let's get into this like it is scripture, because it is. Amen? Uh, I want to first start by saying a few things, okay? When you go and read Matthew Henry or John Owen, or John Owen, John Calvin, or uh, even read some of what Spurgeon talks about when he preaches this. There's several things that jump out of the page at me, okay? 
But the first thing that I want you to notice is it says Jesus went up into the Mountain of Olives, okay? So Jesus starts out in the Mount of Olives again, okay? And I don't know how many times you can go and cross-reference just when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but I can give you at least four times that Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. Luke 21, 37, Luke 19, 37, Mark 3, 13, Mark 11, 1, Jesus is in the Mount of Olives. Jesus spent a lot of time at the Mount of Olives when he was around Jerusalem. This was his place to pray. This was his secluded spot. This is his place. Even on the night that he's betrayed, where does he go? He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane that is right on the Mount of Olives. Amen? So he goes there to pray. He goes there for seclusion. This is his private time with the Father. This is his private time with his disciples. Amen? This is where he went away to get away from the Pharisees, away from the large crowds that were in and out of Jerusalem, okay? So Jesus here is demonstrating, first of all, that he's having his own secluded spot, his own prayer closet, if you will, his own time, personal time with the Father and his disciples. I want you to note how many times in the four Gospels that it says, and Jesus went away with just the disciples. When he was alone with just the disciples, he explained parables, he gave them correction, he told them why, why he said this and why he said that. He told them about him going to Jerusalem to be uh, betrayed and crucified, dead, buried, rise again, right? Three days later. All of those times when he talks about those things, is in their private moments together. Amen? Church, we need to understand that, yes, we need our personal time with God, but this church also needs our personal time with each other. Amen? So this is a very important part of Jesus's. And now watch. Early the, in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, Matthew Henry brings out some point about this that I, I would have never thought about. Do you remember when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem? And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, right? How oft would I have done that, right? Matthew Henry when he talks about this second verse, he says, here he is again, coming again to the temple. Even though in the last chapter, he was berated by the Pharisees. He was scoffed and scorned by those who were watching him in Jerusalem. They were, they were asking him for signs and they were seeking to kill him, right? This is at the end of John 7, right? He says, but here again, the Lord who would have gathered them like hens would gather a chicks, caress them and teach them. Here he is again. He said, how oft have I longed to gather you as a hen gathers his chicks? And Matthew Henry sees this as one of those moments where Christ is trying to gather in these hens. But they would not come. How amazing is that? Matthew Henry lived 
300 years ago. You know, if everybody 300 years ago is a lot stupider than we are, and yes, I said stupider, okay? People back then are just, they, they, didn't, they didn't know as much as we know. I guarantee you not one modern scholar without the help of Matthew Henry would have brought that out of that verse. But a man seven, what in the 1700s who ate, slept, and drank the Bible, when he saw that, he saw this Christ who came to seek and to save the lost coming to Jerusalem to try again and again and again and again to gather them in like a mother hen would gather their chicks. Amen. Verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, I want to get to this point right here because this point that we're about to get to is very important. Verse 5 is the whole hinge upon the whole, this whole pericope, okay? Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Now, first of all, they're accurate in one respect. There was a law that commanded people be stoned who committed adultery, okay? Now, let's talk about these laws, okay? I want you to go with me to uh, Leviticus chapter 20. We're going to talk about these laws, and we're going to look at what it says, okay? Okay? Leviticus chapter 20. <clears throat> and I want to read this with the utmost emphasis. If a man, uh, isn't, I'm in 20 verse, what did I say? What verse? 10, not 20. Okay, here we go. And if a man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Okay? Hold that in your mind. Now go to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. We're going to read verse 21, 22, and I believe uh, 24, but let's start with 21. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 21 and 22. They shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she shall die, because she has wrathfully, uh, she hath wrathfully wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house. So shalt thou put evil away from you. If any man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, and then 
they shall both of them die, both the man that lie with the woman and the woman with the man. So shalt thou put evil away from Israel. Now let's read verse 24. Then ye shall bring them both unto the gate of the city, and they shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he, uh, excuse me, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so shalt thou put away evil from among you. Now, the main thing here that we're seeing is what? What are we seeing? How many people are being, being brought to this tribunal? One, just the woman. Just the woman. The Mosaic law said both of them must die. Both of them. And stoning wasn't always the thing prescribed. In Leviticus, it doesn't say you shall stone them. It just says they shall die. Deuteronomy says stone them in certain instances. But never is it talked about alone. Adultery is not something that happens by yourself. So both parties involved in adultery are to be put to death. Amen? Now, when they come to Jesus, this is the main thing that I wanted you to remember in your mind. First of all, they are not coming to him for him to actually adjudicate an actual Hebrew case because a Hebrew case demands multiple witnesses two or three witnesses right let, let it be established out of the mouth of two or three witnesses that's not New Testament language that's Levitical language everything must be judged by at least two or three witnesses according to Leviticus okay second of all you have to follow what the law says and you don't get to Pardon one person and just bring the woman. Right? So Jesus immediately has to know that they're not really here to uphold Mosaic law. They're here to trap me. Right? Why? What was the trap? What was the trap? I'm going to lay out the trap for you, okay? The trap is this. Because Israel was governed now by Rome, okay? Now, I want to find a verse for this for you just so I can show you that this is not me saying this, okay? I know I have a note here. Let me see if I can find it. I might not. It's okay. There's a verse, I believe it's in either Matthew 18 or Luke 18, where Rome handles all capital punishment. Okay? Because Rome is now controlling Israel, no one in Israel killed anybody without Rome's say-so. Okay? So while the Jewish people had a right to adjudicate all their own laws and principles and 
They could try cases. They could not deal out capital punishment. Okay? So the trap is if Jesus says, go ahead and kill her, he would have been breaking Roman law. And if Jesus said, oh, you got to let her go, he would have been standing against Mosaic law. So they're trying to trap Christ into breaking a law. And it even says, notice how John lays this out, okay? It says right here in verse 3, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery when they had set her in the midst, okay? Now Moses in the law commands us that such, as, such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Now watch what he says in verse 6. And they said this, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. So in other words, they're tempting Jesus into making one of these decisions so that they would have grounds to accuse him of either breaking Roman law or Jewish law. You see that? So Jesus, for all intents and purposes, ignores their statement, okay? And Jesus does what only he could have done, and he brings the matter back to their heart and why they're doing what they're doing, okay? Now, first of all, it was unlawful. Does anybody know the definition of sin? Any transgression of the law is sin, right? The Jewish men in this story are breaking the law. There's no witnesses. Do you also understand that in Jewish culture, the, 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 the people standing around watching, the scribes and the Pharisees, would not have been the people that would have stoned her. It would have been the people who witnessed the sin. The people who were witnesses against them would have been the ones stoning them. Okay? Now, we've already proved they don't have, they don't present any witnesses. They don't, so they don't say, well, this man and this man and this man saw them, right? Now, why did I say this man, this man, and this man? Because also in Jewish law, women's uh, uh, opinion or, or, or testimony wasn't valid. You had to have the testimony of men. So here again, we have no witnesses. And they're breaking the law by only bringing the woman and not bringing the man who was caught in the act as well. Because I'm sorry, you can't catch the woman in the act and not catch the man in the act. I mean, unless he's the invisible man, there's no way that this is happening, okay? But the reality is, is that this very well could be a setup, and this woman may not have done anything wrong. Now, I don't believe that's the case, because Jesus tells her, go and sin no more. So I don't think that this is a made-up story. I believe it's true that she was caught in the act, okay? 
But what they're doing is not upholding Mosaic law. Their only intention was to trap Jesus. Now, this is the definition of Pharisees, okay? This is the definition of the modern term, how we view Pharisees, their hypocrisy, okay? The reality is, if someone really loves you, they will bring the law to your attention. They'll say, hey, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this, okay? But they're not going to unjustly use the, the law against you to trick somebody else or to trick other people, okay? This is a misuse of God's law, and it actually is profaning God's name that they're doing it unjustly. Because Leviticus also says that you're to deal justly with your neighbor, to treat them justly and fairly, to do everything in equity, right? So there's a lot wrong with this story. So Jesus stoops down and writes with his finger on the ground as though he didn't hear them. Now this is the only time in all of the Bible that Jesus is said to have written, written anything, okay? So this is something that you might want to remember. And when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and he said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now here's a couple things that we want to get out of this and one, a couple things we don't want to get out of it. Jesus, do you think Jesus is here saying you can't judge sin at all? Mind you, he's talking to the Pharisees and the, Sag or the scribes, right? These are the leaders of Jerusalem. The Pharisees were probably on the Sanhedrin, so they had to judge cases, right? <clears throat> I believe what we're seeing here is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 7. And if you'll turn back there with me, I'll show you. Now, Matthew 7 is one of the most famous verses that is often misused, right? This verse in Matthew is often misused. He says in Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that ye be not judged, right? Now watch what he says. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say unto thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite! First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Now, Jesus in this story, most often people only remember the first verse. Ain't that right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. And they always misquote it, because that's not how the King James says it, okay? It says, judge not, that ye be not judged. 
For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back against you. And then he gives this parable about the mote in your brother's eye and the beam in your eye. In other words, clean up your own house and then you can help your brother clean up his. Right? So we're not to, it's not that Jesus is saying don't judge at all. He's saying judge righteously, which is what he says in John 7. Right? He says you're judging by outward appearances. Judge righteously. Right? What is judging righteously? Judging righteously would be actually following the law. Judging righteously would be actually looking at my own sin and then going, oh no, am I guilty? Am I walking in sin? Am I doing the same thing that I may be accusing this person of? And actually in the Greek, there is some merit to that approach because some people have translated this uh, where it says, uh, let, let him who has, uh, let me, verse 7, he says, he that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her first. This, let him who is without sin, this, this word could be translated without this same sin, okay? It could have that same understanding of those of you not guilty of this very thing. Let him cast the first stone. Now, I'm going to read it the way it's written and understand that he's saying, let him who is without sin cast the first stone at her. What is he saying? He's saying, have you taken the beam out of your own eye yet? Have you not seen that, first of all, you don't have any witnesses? Have you not seen that you're bringing only the woman here and not the man? Have you, have you come here and not actually wanted to have a trial? You're just wanting to set me up. In other words, your motives are wrong. Your heart's wrong. Your method is wrong. You're not doing it right. Get the beam out of your eye. Then you'll see this situation clearly. Very important. And that hit home with all of them because each one of them was examining their own self. How do I know that? Because verse 8, after he stooped down to write on the ground, and again, they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience. Do you not know that's what the word of God is supposed to do? There's so many people that want this Joel Osteen, love me, love me, love me preaching because it doesn't convict their conscience. And if your conscience is not convicted, your behavior won't change. Sin will not be driven from you. You'll not be driven to your knees to mortify the deeds of the flesh. You'll not want to depart from iniquity. That's what has to happen. The Holy Spirit comes to convict you of sin and of righteousness. And the Word of God is supposed to cut deep. It's supposed to cut like a double-edged sword that cuts through the bone and the marrow, the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's what the Word of God is supposed to do. Because then and only then will I see sin for what it is. I'll see my sin for what it is. And I'll be much more merciful to other people, understanding that the only way that I get mercy is by coming to God for grace. Amen? 
But without that sword, without the convicting of the word of God upon my conscience, I will never turn from sin. I'll never walk away from sin. I'll never, never. But in this instant, Jesus was so right and his words so convicting that each one of them convicted by their own conscience left their stones on the ground and left from the oldest to the youngest. Amen? Now let's get to the last part of this, which is very important. And I'm trying not to spend all night on this, okay? It says, And they that heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Now Jesus has pretty much ignored them the whole time and only said one sentence to them. They leave. And Jesus is left with the woman. And when Jesus had lifted up himself, so he gets up off the ground from stooping and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Now this is very interesting. That Jesus is asking her this question. Hath no man condemned you? It's very important. Okay, because the conviction of Christ's words acquitted her even in those men's eyes. Why? Because their motives were wrong, their methods were wrong, and they knew it. Jesus said to her, No, or, or she said to him, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, this last phrase or two is definitely what I want to talk about. I want to go, if you will, to John 9, or excuse me, not John, Luke 9, 56. Luke 9, 56. Luke chapter 9, verse 56. <clears throat> For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And when and, and they went into another village. Okay? I read this verse for a specific reason because this again tells us that Jesus, while he was on this earth, was not come to judge anyone. Amen? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Okay? Let's read Luke chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 12. Now, let's, let's skip that. Go with me to John 3, 17. I don't think I write, wrote the right one down there, but... We'll, we'll move past that. John 3, 17. This is a very important verse as well. <clears throat> We're going to read this, and many, many of you should know this by heart by now, because I quote it all the time. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You understand, Jesus' first coming was not 
judgment. It was salvation, right? What is he coming back for next time? To judge the living and the dead. Amen? Peter says that, that we're going to live until the, he who comes to judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, right? So Jesus, when he comes back next time, is going to come to judge the living and the dead. He did not come to do that the first time. He came to die an atoning, sacrificial death on the cross and rise from the dead for the salvation of whosoever would believe in him. Amen? Uh, one more verse. John 5. <clears throat> I want to I note this one verse here because... When Jesus tells her to go and sin no more, this isn't the first time he said it. Okay? Very interesting that the people who say, oh, this is, just doesn't even sound like John, doesn't sound like his writing. It's interesting that Jesus looks at the man who he healed and then, you know, the man come and found him when he found out it was Jesus. He says, and after Jesus find it, or Jesus went to find him, Jesus, after he findeth him in the temple, said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Interesting, isn't it? And I have, I don't know, 30, 40 verses cross-referenced just for these 11 verses all throughout Scripture. And I've done it for one simple reason. This pericope absolutely fits the character of Christ, absolutely follows the teaching and the doctrine of the New Testament, absolutely follows the way that John has talked about Christ and how Christ talked throughout the gospel. But the last two points that he makes, number one, where he says, Neither do I condemn you. That's very important. Why is it important? Because up to this point, Jesus has let harlots come and weep over his feet. Wipe his feet, the tears off of his feet with her hair. He's, he's ate with sinners and publicans and drunkards and, and, and demonics, demoniacs after he's, after he's healed them. Amen? He, he went to Zacchaeus' house. He, he, went to, he, he, ha, he met with Nicodemus. He met with the woman at the well who had five husbands. And the man she was with now wasn't her husband. And he condemned none of them. It would be completely out of character for Jesus in all of Scripture to condemn this woman in such a way in his first coming. When he came to seek and to save people just like her. Amen? It would have been completely out of character for the Christ that we see in the New Testament. In the understanding of why he came the first time. Amen? It would have been out of character. That being said, he does admonish her as he admonished that man who was healed. Go. Go. And sin no more. What is he saying that for? 
Because even our faith in Christ lays upon us a duty as Christians to obey the gospel call. To obey not out of a sense of, oh, I have to do this to get saved or I have to do this to be healed or I have to do this to please God. I do this because he's already forgiven me. And now that my life is in his hands and he's my Lord and I'm following him and I've laid down my life and taken up my cross, it is the duty is laid upon me to wage war against my sinful flesh, which is what Paul teaches all through the rest of his epistles, is how we are to behave as Christians, how the church is to be ordered, how our homes are to be ordered, how our lives are to be ordered. Amen? All of this fits. So when we see this woman caught in the act of adultery, which is normally what it's called, or the pericope of the woman caught in the act of adultery, even if you're not thinking that this was original to the text of the Bible, you must admit that it holds solid, absolutely solid Christian teaching. Jesus taught us not to judge unrighteously, but to take the beam out of our eye and then we can help our brother. And see, all he did by pricking the conscience of those men that were around her ready to stone her was he was taking them to the beam in their own eye. He was showing them their own sin. And that's what the word of God should do. It shouldn't show you Shirley's sin or Kyle's sin. It should show you your own sin, your own mistakes, your own fault. And it should cause you to fall upon the mercy of Christ so that you can be healed of your affliction, freed from your sin, and then you can go and sin no more. Amen? That's the whole point. And that, in my opinion, does not promote adultery. It absolutely promotes the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and also the expectation that God has on believers to live their life in such a way that people know that they're believers. Amen? So as we close tonight, that's what I want you to gain from this portion of this text. And, and, and even if you have somebody come and say, oh, they don't know if that's original. You look at them and say, my pastor thinks it is. Uh, associate pastor thinks it is. And, and everybody in church history has thought it was. So I'm agreeing with them. That's in the Bible. Amen. It's in the Bible. Let's stand and pray. Father God, we thank you. Lord, we give you glory and honor. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we have read this portion of Scripture tonight, Lord, and we've actually got to exegete it, God. We ask, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, the great message that can be gleaned from this. Lord, knowing that all that's taught here, God, is upheld by other portions of Scripture, knowing that these things are absolutely true that you have taught, God. Lord, help us to see your word for what it is. 
all-sufficient God. Your word has all that we need to know to live our lives in accordance with your will, God. That it contains everything we need to know about life and godliness, salvation, grace, mercy, and redemption in Jesus Christ. Help us to uphold your word, God, and to never, ever doubt it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.